Let's pray. Father, we come before you uh, grateful that you are a God that loves us, that cares for us. I pray that you would be with me as I prepare to preach your word and be with the hearers as they prepare to receive it and apply it. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. I remember I was about 10 or so, and Shrek the movie was huge. And uh, there were a lot of reasons it performed well. It had a unique story. Uh, its animation at the time was still uh, pretty fresh. And it had wide appeal among kids and adults, I think. But another reason it was great was the music. It actually won an award for its soundtrack. Naturally, since I had just gotten a CD player and it was Christmas, I asked my mom if she would get me it. Uh, and I was really excited about the soundtrack because it had both uh, All-Star and I'm a Believer by Smash Mouth on it. And on top of that, if it weren't already amazing enough, uh, it also had the mashup of famous songs at the end of the film. So I could hardly wait for this thing. Christmas morning came and my mom, being the sort of mom that always wanted to make us happy, had gotten me the original score from Shrek. Now, if you're not overly familiar, there's one thing to know. That there is technically a difference between uh, soundtracks and scores. Uh, not all soundtracks are scores, uh, <clears throat> but all scores are soundtracks. So when I said, uh, asked my mom for the soundtrack, she got me the score. So Shrek had two releases for its music. It had the uh, CD with all the songs, like uh, from Smash Mouth. Uh, but then it also had the orchestrated stuff with no words or anything. And guess which one I got? I was uh, upset that this happened and also a little confused because it didn't make sense to me that people would listen to music like that. Uh, couldn't, couldn't imagine that that was something that people would freely listen to. Seems so odd to me. Similarly, Jesus isn't always what we expect. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and we continue to make way today with an important message and tone setter for the rest of the Gospel. We saw back in chapter 4 Jesus essentially giving his mission statement. Now we will see Jesus explain a bit of the reason why he has the methods he does. Pastor Eric has already discussed over the last few weeks some of the context of this passage, but the summary version is that Jesus is calling healing, and eating with people that many felt he ought not to be. He also is forgiving the sins of people, something only God could do. And so our story today continues that narrative of Jesus not being what the people expected. His crime this time? Well, he isn't acting as pious as he should be. In the minds of many of the religious folks back then, fasting was a sign that you took God seriously. You would fast uh, because of repentance or because you wanted God to do some great work, or sometimes you would fast because you wanted to show just how pious you were, which was not a God-sanctioned use of it, but it happened nonetheless. Generally, though, it was used to lament something, and so these religious people were marked with lamenting, as Pharisees would often fast twice a week. Perhaps that's why they seemed to always be in a bad mood. Maybe they were just hungry. But after calling Levi to follow him, and after the Pharisees questioning why Jesus was eating with sinners, he says that he is here to be a doctor to the sick. After hearing this reason and likely seeing that Jesus' logic was pretty sound, they decided to attack him on a different front. They compare him to John the Baptist, who would also fast and pray with his disciples, a stark contrast from what Jesus uh, was doing with his disciples, which was frequent celebrating with food and drink. Wasn't Jesus concerned about his image? What would people think of a religious figure? 
being so happy all the time. Eating and drinking all the time simply wasn't what you were supposed to do. Plus, they had major issues to worry about. What were they going to do about Rome, for example? Jesus' response is a simple one. You party while you still can. Jesus would not be there forever, so the disciples should celebrate with him while he's still present with them. Of course, there are a few pieces to what Jesus is talking about here. First, we know later that Jesus is said to have married the church. So it seems his choice of referring to himself as the bridegroom was intentional. Second, with him being taken away, it also alludes to what Christ is facing on, uh, facing later on down the road, which was his own crucifixion. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about each of those things, but our focus today is on the larger point that Christ is trying to make, which is that Jesus does things differently because the times are different. We'll talk more about what the new means, but Jesus recognizes these questions that are asked of him as oppositional. The people are resistant to what Christ is doing. So he shares a couple of parables to point out the silliness of their opposition. Now, I'm a reasonable, per reasonable person, or at least I like to think that I am. So when my jeans start to get tattered and worn down, perhaps knees, I go to the store. I'll buy a pair of pants that fit me, look nice, are reasonably priced, uh, and after much begging, you know, I'll eventually try them on. Uh, and after getting home, I do what everyone does, and I cut out the knees of the new pants, and I sew them into the new ones, uh, just to save that old pair of pants. And when I'm done and proud of my ability to rescue my poor pair of jeans, I toss the formerly new pair in the trash where it belongs. Now, of course, it would be insane if I actually did that. Of course I don't do it like that. Uh, <clears throat> and that's Jesus' point. And so uh, it might also be like buying a new Ford Focus and ripping the new engine out of that to replace the old dilapidated engine in your tractor. Okay? I'm not very mechanically inclined, but I suspect that that's not going to fix many of your problems. Now, hopefully you're laughing at these absurd images because I do think that Jesus' intention here is to be funny. Because when the metaphor is applied back to their situation, we should realize, one, how silly it made them look, and two, how there was no way to straddle the line of the old and the new. This is what Jesus gets at a little more directly in his second parable. He uses the example of people trying to put new wine into old wineskins. The wineskins were really only meant for one use, because as the wine fermented, it would expand, and so you would drink that until the wine was gone, and then uh, you would be done with it. But if, as Jesus is saying, if you're trying to put new wine into an old wineskin, one that has already been used, it's already expanded. So it's just going to keep expanding until eventually it bursts, and that's going to ruin your new wine. It's a complete waste of new wine. So what Jesus is communicating here to his questioners is that there is no way to take the parts of him that they like. The disciples hearing this were probably also receiving a message that they need to be all in for Jesus. It simply does not work to try and keep some of your old ways and mix in the new things you like that Jesus brings. Now, I want to be careful here because I'm not saying that Jesus is doing away with everything these people were doing. Fasting is still a good thing. Jesus himself actually fasted in the wilderness, as we already saw uh, earlier in Luke. And, uh, and he also seems to say the same thing after the Last Supper, saying that he will not eat again until it finds fulfillment 
in the kingdom of God. Luke twenty two sixteen. Paul is said to have fasted in Acts 9, 9. We also see lots of examples of the church fasting for various reasons uh, throughout the book of Acts. And Paul even encourages it in 1 Corinthians 7. So clearly, Jesus is not trying to overthrow uh, this religious practice altogether. Jesus is, however, challenging their purpose for it and their timing of it as well. According to Jesus, they are not observing it in the right way or at the right time. And that's the issue at hand. Another thing to note here that I think is extremely relevant is the picking and choosing of Jesus' attributes and actions. Jesus expects total obedience. He demands full immersion into his mission and cause. Today, for American Christians especially, where capitalism has offered us choices in everything, it is difficult to not have choices. In many ways, our religious climate reflects those choices. We have a syncretistic national religion where people have grabbed whatever they like about each religion and they mix it together to sort of create their own personalized belief system. In America, we have people in the church that believe in contradictory things, like that God is over all things, but also look to the horoscope to tell them what to expect that day. There are people who wrongly hold simultaneously that that God is the ultimate judge, but that karma will exact justice on the world or on the one that wrongs you. But it goes even beyond these ideas of syncretism to simply a lack of desire to follow Jesus completely. We take what we like about Jesus and perhaps ignore the parts that we don't. And we might say, oh, I I love what Jesus has to say about the poor, but I don't know about this whole turning the other cheek thing. Or I I love how Jesus teaches us to invest the talents that we have, but that story about the rich young ruler makes me uncomfortable. We have certain things that we love about Jesus and others that are a direct challenge to us. We should expect that to be the case if we accept that we're all broken people lost in our sin. We should expect that in our broken state, we don't perfectly align with Christ. However, part of the call of discipleship, of being saved, is that we continually seek to align our will with Christ. We abandon the things we think, feel, or do that do not harmonize with the kingdom. Jesus instructs us, however, not to mix the old with the new. But what even is the new in these parables? What is Jesus talking about? Well, everything before Christ had painted a particular portrait of the relationship between God and man that had cultural implications born out of it. As you know, sin had caused massive repercussions, alienating man from God. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the entire framework in which humanity understood and related to Yahweh had changed. Sin was a type of pollution, corrupting everything in the world. It made humanity dirty, impure, and actually, it also made non-sinful things separate man from God, like eating certain foods. Religion, in many ways, was a process of getting clean and pure so that you could once again stand in the presence of Yahweh. This seemed to have preoccupied much of their minds back then, as we see all sorts of references to being clean and pure and their fight against impurity and darkness. In fact, if we look at Leviticus, it's not really thought of as a narrative, um, given that it contains a bunch of purity laws and rituals for getting clean and being forgiven, but there is a tension throughout the book. And at the end of Exodus leading into Leviticus, we are told that the people could not enter the tabernacle tent because of their uncleanness. 
But by the time that we get through Leviticus and the beginning of Numbers, we see that the laws and rituals worked. The people are now able to enter the tent after being cleansed. So socially, this is the structure life revolved itself around. If you had some sort of disease or defect, well, you were impure. And the community of Israel could not allow an impure or defective person to participate, or at least not fully. By the time the people of Israel get to the promised land in Joshua, they are warned to not let the surrounding cultures defile them. Impurity spreads. Sin pollutes. And we see that even more clearly in the book of Judges. So what is the new patch or the new wine? I still haven't really answered that. I'm sorry for that. But the new wine is the new era that Christ brings in. It is everything that he is about to change. In the past, sin and physical defects were reasons to avoid a person and would keep you from God. Now, however, Jesus Christ the Messiah has come to usher in the era of the kingdom and spirit of God. What Jesus is radically changing is what is contagious. Before, it was sin that was contagious. But now, it is Jesus that is contagious. Before it was sin, now it is his holiness spreading to those he interacts with. His holiness heals those defects. An encounter with his holiness is so transformative that it brings about repentance from the least likely sources, those most entrenched in their sins. Before Christ, you had to be careful that you weren't being contaminated in some way. But now, Christ is going right to those contaminated sources, and he's purifying them. In a simple way, you could say that Jesus switches us from playing defense to playing offense, as Pastor Eric talked about last week. In some ways, this isn't new per se. In Exodus, the people weren't allowed to go near the mountain because God's holiness was so intense that they would physically die if they got too close to him. In that sense, then, holiness was also contagious, just not in a way that we wanted to deal with it. With Christ, however, we do not fear death from drawing near to God. Well, why is that? Is God less holy now than he once was? Of course not. But what is different is the installation of the kingdom of heaven and all that goes with that, as well as the work of Christ on earth. Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit, ordained to heal the brokenness in the world and restore humanity to God. He is changing hearts, attitudes, ethics, our mission, and our status before God the Father. All of these things are intertwined, but when we think of Jesus and how he changes us, it's probably the heart that we think of first. Jesus meets someone, he reveals their sin, and they experience a transformation that radically alters how they feel about any given thing. Whatever it was before, it was out of alignment with Christ. After their experience, however, they are brought into alignment with him. For example, with Levi, we saw a tax collector, you know, someone known for stealing money from people by demanding from citizens more than what they owed the government, and then pocketing the change. In Zacchaeus' case, and I think it's fair to assume that a similar heart change happened in Levi, we see that their heart changed so dramatically that Levi wanted to repay the people that he ripped off with interest, like his heart had changed that dramatically. And often accompanying this, and perhaps even precluded by it, is an attitude change. The way we think about things is often wrong, as Jesus so painfully points out to us. In our story today, there is an attitude towards fasting that 
demonstrates a mindset that is foreign to the kingdom. Our religious practices cannot and should not be elevated over the one we practice for in the first place. The people were lamenting what they should be celebrating. We see a similar story in Luke 10 where Jesus is with Mary and Martha. Mary is intently listening and worshiping Jesus. Where uh, Martha is trying to be a good host and is frustrated that she seems to be the only one trying to do that. But Jesus commends Mary because she recognizes the preciousness of being with Christ. It was a difference in attitude and the way they thought about the context. Relevant to our recent passages, Jesus changes how we ought to perceive the sick. These are not people we need to avoid or to condemn as being sinful or or condemn their parents for being sinful, but these are people made in the images are in the image of God, deserving of our love and our compassion. These changed hearts and attitudes demand a new ethic as well. The Israelites were expected to follow the law of God, and that law was good and necessary, but also was easy to simply follow externally. Now, we don't have time for it today, but uh, I don't think that we should understand that the law uh, was only addressing the external actions of the people. And I think, that, I think there's plenty of evidence in the Old Testament of that, where you know God is getting upset with the people that don't come to him. They're doing the right thing, but they're not coming to him with the right attitude. Uh, but regardless, that's a, that's a much larger discussion. Uh, but regardless, it is true that people tended to seek to follow the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. Jeremiah prophesied a solution, that God would put the law on the people's hearts. We read in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says this, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke even though I am their master. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. There is a new covenant made where sins are forgiven but also where people are transformed because there is a sense of hopelessness uh, before this. Even when the external actions were in keeping with the law, were their hearts? And this is what Jesus is getting at with the Sermon on the Mount, that to truly follow God, you must do those same things, but do it with the right heart and the right attitude. That is a new ethic. Jesus says, for example, that the law forbids adultery. So you shouldn't do that. But what is new is that Jesus actually elevates the law. He says that there is more to do. Anyone who is even looking lustfully at a woman that they are not married to is committing adultery in their heart. You can imagine a man listening in on that day. I've never cheated on my wife. Haven't I kept the law? Really, I can't even look at a woman lustfully? Jesus says that we can commit sins from our heart even if we never physically act them out. 
Murder? Don't even harbor hatred in your heart, he says. The law says to love your neighbor. Jesus elevates who our neighbor is, saying we need to love all people, including our enemies. These are radical changes to an entire ethical system, and Jesus calls his disciples to obey. Lastly, there is a new calling in this new era. Jesus expects his disciples to follow him obediently, as we've already discussed, but they were also called to minister to people who had likely never been ministered uh, to before by those who knew God. The Gentiles' time had come. There were whispers of this happening in the Hebrew Bible. You have people like Rahab, Ruth, and Miriam, etc. But now the doors were blown open. The gospel was coming to people from all walks of life, every corner of the earth. And the disciples were to be the ones that were to go out and to do this. Jesus models what proper care and attention looks like to men and women, and they were expected to follow suit in their mission. So to quickly recap, the new era was signified by new hearts, attitudes, ethics, and calling. It was a new understanding of purity, now on the offensive. But this is hard, though, and and Jesus, I think, wisely points this out in verse 39. To wrap up the second parable, Jesus acknowledges that Of course, old wine is preferred to new wine. I mean, it's commonly understood that as a wine ages, it becomes stronger and more flavorful. I looked up what some of the most expensive bottles of wine ever sold were, and two of the top five uh, uh, highest-selling wines were both from 1787, with the cheaper one selling for a quarter of a million dollars. So old wine tastes better. People are willing to pay for it, although I'm not sure I'll ever be able to actually test that out for myself. Jesus is referring to himself and the kingdom here as the new wine. But he is not saying that the new wine is, as good, or is not as good as the old. Rather, he's pointing out how we are likely to receive this new wine. We prefer the old. We like the way it tastes over the new. Applying it back to the here's context, they're likely to prefer the old traditions, the old way of doing things. Certainly, I think we can you know, relate to that, I expect. It's hard to change. Most don't like it. And this is because when we receive new information, we process it through our presuppositions. But when those presuppositions are challenged, uh, it becomes extremely difficult. For example, when we have presuppositions about how we're supposed to treat the physically deformed. But Jesus challenges this. What do we do with that? We have to change how we think about it. Our minds can barely stand it, and we tend to resist that new concept because it would force us to radically change our entire framework for thinking. And we see examples of this today with bias confirmation. People are far more accepting of data from sources that hold to similar views as their own, and they tend to resist anything from untrusted sources. Now, there, in some ways, this is good, but you know, and maybe it would be good if we were objective enough uh, in how we choose what to trust. The bias, however, it can be incredibly powerful and strong, and it feeds into that resistance that we experience. And this is the uphill battle that Christ is facing in his ministry. He's trying to transform people from one way of thinking and understanding into a completely different one. One that even goes against common sense sometimes. Naturally, we strive for self-preservation. Jesus has some things to say about that. 
Laying down your life for another is not good for survival. If our goal in life is to get the most pleasure out of it, then denying yourself for the good of others at sacrifice of yourself, it doesn't really mesh well with that philosophy. We want the old wine, thank you very much. And I wanted that Shrek CD, the real one. But there's more to the story that perhaps my students have already guessed. Because if you ask any of them that have had to ride with me and thus listen to my awesome collection of music, they'll quickly tell you that they likely had to listen to a bunch of music with no words. The reason for that, as you have probably all connected now, is that I ultimately ended up loving that Shrek score. I had like four CDs at the time, uh, and so my selection was pretty limited. So eventually I gave it a chance, and as I listened, I was oddly moved by it. Uh, a statement that remains just as perplexing to me today. Uh, it's probably not very high on most people's uh, you know, lists of inspirational music, but I loved it. And soon I was diving into Danny Elfman's weird dark theme scores and uh, you know, Edward Scissorhands, or he did the Michael Keaton Batman films. I fell in love with John Williams, right, who's famous for so many stellar pieces like Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones, and E.T. Each of those movies had iconic themes, uh, many of which you might even be humming to yourself right now as you think about them. But all that to say that we often resist change because of the uncertainty that comes with it. You think of the person who has thought about a job change, but, uh, you know, they're miserable with their current job, but... Uh, but they don't want to take action to get out of it because they fear that maybe the job they currently have is the best that they can get. Or maybe there's a person whose way of living has made them millions, but at the great cost of others' well-being, perhaps family, employees, or society in general. It is hard to change when you think things are working fine enough or when you're uncertain about what might come from it. But like the example of Shrek's music, sometimes we just don't know how good things can be, how much better they are with some change. If we want to be faithful to Christ, it will require change. The new era is already here, with a promise of its completion coming soon. For those of you who already belong to Christ, are there areas of your life where you're holding out from Christ? A change you need to make to be more faithful to him, but are resistant to that change? Perhaps letting go of a grudge and ultimately letting God uh, serve as the judge over the one who wronged you. Maybe you go to church because of the social standing it gives you. Is that really following Christ? Perhaps we sigh with disgust when we see a teen mother or the homeless man on the side of the street. What attitude does Christ want us to have towards these people? And are we asking that question and then shifting our thinking in order to align our thinking with God's? For those of you who have never really heard the gospel or have never received it as truth, Jesus offers you a world like none other. It is harder, yes, but it is also sweeter and has so much more to offer you than anything else in this world. I remember seeing this funny video uh, where a trailer was made for the old Mary Poppins film, uh, but it was reimagined as a horror film. And it used real clips from the, uh, the movie, but the biggest change was the music. Instead of hearing the joyous chipper music accompanied by the happy scenes, it would take clips and put creepy music in the background. 
So instead of seeing Mary Poppins floating down with her umbrella from the sky as something whimsical, it now looks demonic because of the music. Is she demon-possessed? I'm not sure, but it can't be good, whatever is going on here. The context offers a lens in which uh, we interpret it. Uh, the music offers a context in which we can interpret it. And so it might I suggest to you who don't know Jesus, to those who struggle to make sense of the world, that perhaps you simply have the wrong music playing. Perhaps when you have the right music, everything will begin to make sense. And Jesus offers you that in this new era. Whether you are paralyzed or have been burned by religious members or institutions, or maybe you have committed great atrocities in your life, Jesus has called all to himself, and as Jeremiah wrote, forgets your sins and iniquities, and he transforms your whole being. His death and resurrection provided a way for you to be united with himself and to spend the rest of eternity working in harmony with him in uninterrupted peace. How about that for the soundtrack of your life? Repent and believe. Jesus extends his hand to you. Let's pray. Father, uh, I'm just grateful uh, for the things that you reveal to us in your word that you have given us easy access to these, that we may learn from them and align ourselves with you. I repent of our hardened hearts, pray that you would soften us, help us to be more receptive to what you would have us learn from you so that we might be better uh, uh, equipped and, and uh, better serve you out in life so that the people that we are supposed to be a light to uh, would get the brightest effect from us. Pray that you would go with, uh, with each of us, but also be with the people who we do interact with, people that we brush shoulders with. Help them to see the beauty that you have to offer. Help us to live into that. Pray these things in your name. Amen.